0: And this section starts with a quote from John Watson in an interview uh, with an Italian uh, publication, Quaderni Piacentini. Um, you don't read about them in Newsweek or see them on television. They're too dangerous. They're too dangerous to the system to have information about the kind of work being done at Eldon to be disseminated widely. This is a war we're talking about. There's literally a war going on inside the American factories. This is a violent struggle. Sometimes it is organized and guided. Most times it is unorganized and spontaneous. But in the course of this struggle, more American workers have died than in all the four major wars. And so that's to preface this, uh, this long testimonial from, from a worker at the Eldon plant, uh, John Taylor, who was a member of the Motor City Labor League, which was a Marxist-Leninist organization. Our steward in Department 75 on the third shift was a man named Frank McKinnon. I got to know him when I was in workman's comp because McKinnon was a witness in a case involving a fight. Chrysler had a policy of firing the aggressor, so the question of who started the fight was important. McKinnon gave me a statement that the worker had started the fight. I found out later he lied to me. This was the kind of steward he was. When I got to be a worker, he refused to write up my safety grievances. A number of us also had grievances relating to pay raises due us because of promotions. We were supposed to get a five-cent-an-hour raise within a week, but it took me six weeks to get mine because the foreman didn't wouldn't do the paperwork. He was trying to save on his own budget, and McKinnon wouldn't write up the grievance about it. That's how things worked at Eldon. My safety grievance typifies the problems in that factory. I worked on what they call a modern grinder. We used to laugh about it because there was nothing modern about it at all. It was ancient. We had to burn off the rough edges of Rangers, which looked like donuts with metal teeth. This part went into the differential. There was a lot of fine dust generated by this grinding. The company put vents on the machines to hold this down, but every shift the the filters would get clogged. The supervision would never give us the little time needed for someone to come and do some maintenance on them. I requested a mask. I got this thing that didn't look right and asked for the box it came in. I turned out to be for paint and gas fumes and was no help against dust. I ran all this down to McKinnon, but he refused to deal with it. So I called for a department meeting. I organized around him. The union president wouldn't schedule the meeting for more than two weeks because he said that we had one word wrong in our petition. Richardson, the president, was just pissed because he had just taken office and now, less than two months later, there was dissatisfaction with one of his stewards. Richardson told me straight off he wanted people to cool off because he didn't want angry people in the union hall. That's another indication of the union's attitude. They do not want to deal with angry workers. I started seeing Sims in the cafeteria every morning. This was in early 1969, and he suggested I get on the union bylaws committee. I worked on that for a year with Sims and a guy named J.C. Thomas. We grew up some bylaws that would have made the union as honest and democratic as unions can be in this period. Needless to say, those bylaws were never presented to the membership. So this is giving you a picture of the level of, you know, hand-in-glove work that entrenched leadership members in the UAW were with, the, union, with uh, the company at the time and how invested they were that, like, class struggle exists during contract negotiation times, everything else it doesn't, and, and, and you know, everybody shut up and go back to work. Um, and so the Revolutionary Union movement and the League really trying to shake things up. And you can see, like these situations, how obvious it was called for. By 1970, we had gotten to a situation where Chrysler was making most of its money off small cars, the Valiant and the Dart. One reason things got so bad at Dodge Main was that was that is where they made those cars. Behind the need for increased production and because they wanted to harass the Union, Chrysler did a lot of firing, disciplinary actions, and all sorts of bullshit. There was attempted speed-up in my department at Eldon. One foreman arbitrarily raised the quota on the grinding machine, which was totally against the contract. What we did was lower to 400 instead of the usual 700 gears, and that cooled his ass about a speed-up. On April 16th, 1970, things built up to what we called the Scott-Ashlock incident. There was a black worker named John Scott who was physically small who was a physically small man. His foreman was a fairly large guy from Mississippi named Irwin Ashlock. They got in, uh, into an argument and Ashlock picked up a pinion gear and said he was going to smash Scott's brains out. Scott complained to his steward and the union took it up with the company. Well, Chrysler came back with this claim that Scott had taken a knife from his pocket, you know, as if all blacks carry knives. They claimed Ashlock had a right to protect himself rather than discipline Ashlock. They were going to fire Scott. This sparked a wildcat strike, which shut the place down for the whole weekend. That was a beautifully successful strike. It had an old-fashioned unity, young and old, black and white, men and women. Everyone was militant. The skilled tradesmen went out too. At a union meeting, a white worker named John Felicia, who had seen the whole thing, spoke from the stage in the hall. There were maybe 1,000 people there. Felicia said that there were white workers at Eldon and black workers at Eldon, but the main thing was that they were all workers, and that he had seen the whole thing, and that John Scott was telling the absolute truth and was totally in the right. The company needed our gears for those valiants, so they backed down. Everyone thought we had won. But then, after a couple of weeks, the company started acting up. They threatened to discipline the second shift stewards who had led the walkout. They began to have Foreman follow those gu- these guys around, and then on May 1st, they were told towards the end of the shift they were all going to be suspended for an unauthorized work stoppage in violation of the no-strike clause of the contract. They were shown the door leading to the street. What happened was that a guy named Clarence Thornton shoved the plant guards out of the way and led everyone back into the plant. This was shift time. I remember meeting a steward, and he said, quote, "'We're shutting her down. Go home.'" By midnight, the factory was shut down. Chrysler went in for an injunction and got it. The union lawyer from Solidarity House refused to defend Local 961 on the grounds that it might bring legal action against the whole union. They sold out the strike. They advised us to go back to work without our stewards. We worked most of that summer without any stewards. Both Jordan Sims and Frank McKinnon were fired in this action. In response to those firings, a group called the Eldon Safety Committee was formed, which included myself, some members of Elrum, and the final stewards, uh, the fired stewards led by Jordan Sims. Our program was to research and document the issue of safety in the plan. We got advised by lawyers Ron Glotta and Mike Adelman that we had the right to refuse work under abnormally dangerous conditions. That would not constitute a strike, and the company could not get an injunction. We saw that we had an umbrella for closing down Eldon. We were so naive, we thought words meant what they said. When you look at our leaflets that period, you will see that we quote the law and all that stuff. We put out a few leaflets, but events overtook took us. The plant was indeed abnormally dangerous. On May 26th, 1970, this was proven when a man named Gary Thompson was buried under five tons of steel when his faulty jitney tipped over. We talked about this incident in uh, the first segment that I read uh, back on episode 43. Um Thompson was a black Vietnam veteran about 22 years old. The Jitney he was running was full of safety flaws. On May 27th, we set up picket lines. By we, I mean the Eldon Safety Committee and the League of Revolutionary Black Workers. This was not as successful as the first strike, but it cost them 2,174 axles over two days. We're proud of each and every one of them. The three Wildcats within a month and a half cost them 22,000 axles during a period when they desperately needed them for their valiance. Chrysler immediately fired me and three members of the league, James Edward, Alonzo, Chandler, and Rob McKee. And this is, so this is just to highlight another aspect I think where you see just the clear dichotomy between the established union leadership siding with the company and then the radical workers so fed up with this that they are forced to build their own organization uh, to, to try and actually forward the immediate needs of the workers and not telling everyone, well, we have a no-strike clause. Uh, if you're not happy with how the grievance procedure is followed, which again, as he mentions, you have like these stewards who are like, ah, I'm not going to do it. Fuck it. Fuck you. Um, that you're too bad. You got to wait until the next contract negotiation. All while, as they mentioned in here, you have people getting killed all the time, constantly because of these horrific conditions and the union's not doing anything. So, uh, I mean, you would hope, and I know that numerically, just because of the shrinkage the, the small size of, and, and higher automation of the, the industry today, there's certainly less workplace deaths. But we talk about conditions, you know, not too dissimilar from that all the time on the show. And so uh, the idea that – there's this idea that's put forward of, oh, well, you know, we used to need unions, but now we have things like OSHA, and I think everyone listening knows that that's, that's some bullshit and that the only thing that is really ever going to stand up for workers' rights are workers themselves. And so if a workers' organization, like what the UAW is supposed to be, isn't doing it, then you're going to have people, you know, organize directly. And that's what the RUM movement was, and I think that we're seeing that with some stuff like Amazonians United today.